0: People who actually carry it, whereas E. Coli is present in in everyone. Yeah. You know, so in if yeah, it, it gets to a point where um, all E. Coli is resistant, then essentially, like that's going to be a big problem for the human species mm-hmm. um, as a whole. You know, so. Yeah. I, <laughs> Yeah. So, some
1: people describe well, the problem as return to the dark ages. You know, imagine when you have this severe infection and no treatment works, you know. Mm-hmm. I you think know,
2: that's a- the ironic part about it because if I think as, like, a, a, a devil's advocate, you know, and I think from the other point of view, someone might say, well, you guys just want us to go back, you know, to, like, the seventeen, eighteen hundreds, 1800s or, or, or before that where you might have five kids and three of them die from infections, you know, and 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 everything was so dangerous. Um but the ironic part about that, and not funny ironic, it's sad ironic, is that we're returning to that state through the overuse of these drugs mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, the natural world will again be more dangerous uh to humanity because we've tried to overcompensate. Mm-hmm. And it's really like it's think- a sad turn of events.
1: It is very sad indeed, and I think it's fair to say that even though there is a lot of irresponsibility coming from hospitals, factories, doctors, and patients alike, a lot of our surge of antibiotic resistance comes from the environment, from the antibiotics that they give to the animals.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was one figure that uh, 80% of the antibiotic use in the United States was for uh, food animals, which is insane
0: and 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 it's not even given to animals which are ill
3: uh-huh.
0: um like most of the drugs are just routinely fed to the animals just to prevent illness <laughs> it's basically the uh, these animals are in like a really filthy condition they live in their own excrement mm. and they're surrounded by other animals who are who were chronically infected and so they basically just pump all of these animals with antibiotics even if they're not ill themselves And that antibiotics, uh, those antibiotics are in the meat in which we buy. And so when we eat that food, when we eat that meat, um, we are essentially ingesting the residue from those antibiotics as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all sorts of other health implications that come with that.
4: I guess it's just too hard for these owners of the KFO farms to just clean up the environment. I mean, there's really no reason why they can't sweep up or... (laughs) <laughs> you know, put a, put a power washer <laughs> through every once in a while just to get the animals from standing in their own poo. I mean, I know it's gross, but, you know, how difficult is that?
3: Or not to cram so yeah. many animals in that there's no way to clean. Mm-hmm. It's just, and I mean, it's it's not or only just it. to prevent infection, too, because they're also, they've discovered that by pumping animals full of antibiotics, they actually fatten up um, in, in a, a shorter amount of time and, and they get bigger than they would otherwise. So it's actually a way of them increasing their profits overall as well. No surprise there.
2: Yeah. I think that part of the diabolical loop that, that started here was, um, uh, the, between, uh, demand, uh, a lack of awareness and, uh, the industry, you know, striving for profits because not all these factory farms are, you know, basically are like just set up by corporations and then run poorly. It's a, uh, it's kind of a snowball effect of someone who may have started out as a small farmer grew and grew and grew, uh, and then found that in order to survive, they had to contract for a larger agricultural company, um, you know, or a meat producer or something like that. And then in order to meet their standards of production, they had to do certain things um, then they might have less money dedicated to maintaining the environment because they have to output X amount of chickens or pigs. Um, and it just snowballs to the mm-hmm. point where, you know, you have uh, – I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, a lot of the, the farmers that are in this situation are probably frustrated because in order to meet their needs, they, they have to conform uh, to the, the, the protocols of the corporation, which is looking for X amount of output. Uh, and that causes them to slack off in certain areas. So that's what I'm saying. I, I don't think that it's like like bare negligence all over the place. It's mm-hmm. like it's an effect of the demand, which has increased and increased and increased. Uh, and not only the demand for more, um, but also for cheaper uh, food. Uh, you know, so like the other day I went to the store and you can get chicken drumsticks uh, Twelve for like a dollar eighty, mm. and I'm like, where are these chickens coming from? You know, somebody's <laughs> so over the top. It's cheaper
5: than water.
2: Yeah. It is, yeah, it's cheaper than water. Well, well it's ironic. Well,
5: Jonathan, to address um, your what you were saying. In the U.S., the FDA has known since the 1970s that the routine feeding of antibiotics to livestock and poultry in these KFOS is a common source of antibiotic resistance, such as MRSA. You know, so they, they, they have the information. And in the U.S., right. there's been several um, representatives that have tried to do something about it because the U.S. is a mad factory farm. Producer And like you said, maybe somebody started out as small chicken growers and then they got bought out by a bigger company and more and more um, production is, you know, to keep in business. But one woman, Representative Louise Slaughter, which I thought her name was kind of interesting. She's a Democrat from <sighs> New York. She's the only microbiologist in Congress. And she's been pushing to try and regulate the use of antibiotics in in factory farm animals because she obviously sees as a microbiologist that this is becoming a nightmare and it's not going to get any better. And she uh, introduced uh, Preservation of Antibiotics for Animal Treatment Act, and it was supported by over 450 medical and consumer advocate groups, but they got blocked by millions of dollars in lobbying from uh, meat and agriculture interests. You know, so there there are people that are kind of sounding the alarm, but big lobby, big pharma, big ag is shutting that down because they they want the money. They have words and she killers. also introduced another yeah. She introduced another delivering antimicrobial transparency and animal act that basically. Uh, required a a breakdown of species receiving antibiotics and reporting the actual use. So how much is being used? um, Wanting to know how much of these drugs are being used in, say, the cattle industry or the pork industry or the chicken industry would help identify the problem. Like, where is these bacteria coming from exactly? And it it sounds like, just doing the research, that the chicken one is the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why they're they're so cheap i don't know in one article we had on SOD about the alarming amounts of superbugs in supermarkets mm-hmm. 65% of chickens were resistant to te- tetracycline and more than 90% to lincomycinamides i'm not sure if that's which is the drug celenomycin uh, so chicken bacteria yeah.
1: is the worst that's why I haven't eaten chicken like in the longest time, you know.
4: Well, even the European Parliament will not put a ban on the prophylactic use of antibiotics in farm animals. So it's not just the U.S. that's getting blocked in this area.
2: Well, it's a, yeah. I mean, the lobbying you know, stops this from happening. It's like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this story about the news. team. cow and I don't remember exact
4: Jonathan, you're going in and out. We're catching like every fourth word.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, uh, I was going to say, uh, why don't we, um, do you guys want to go to that second clip? Uh, sure. So we can hear yeah, the, yeah, uh, the, good, the story. good news. Yeah. Yeah. The good part. <laughs> <laughs> the doctors
6: had given us absolutely no information about this bacteria or how to control it. We discovered that staff is highly contagious. It can survive on surfaces and fabrics for several weeks, and it can easily pass from person to person through casual contact. We also discovered that MRSA was rampant in the community. Once we recognized the symptoms, we realized that it had been circulating among the children in the form of impetigal, which is caused by staph, for over a year. This became a serious problem. After the cotrimoxazole prescription ended, I was immediately reinfected by one of my friend's children. My body was completely unable to defend itself, and I still didn't know why. I didn't want to get on antibiotics again, so I began to try home remedies. Some of these remedies seemed to help. Some... Made it worse, but nothing stopped it completely. Then one of the infections got out of control and began spreading rapidly through my left arm. I was forced to go back to the doctor. By the time we got a new culture done, it showed that the bacteria had developed resistance to all the previous antibiotics, and there were only two medications left that could be taken without an IV tetracycline and rifampicin. To prevent it from gaining resistance, I was placed on both of these at the same time. When the doctor removed the scab, we discovered that the infection had dug a hole into my forearm a full one-quarter inch deep. Because it was so deep, it took just over two months to heal. I continued taking both of these antibiotics for that entire period. By the time the hole had closed, I was already seeing signs that the bacteria had acquired resistance. During this two-month period, I had self-quarantined to avoid reinfection. My children were visiting their grandparents, and one of them had been put on antibiotics during the visit to fight her own infection. Just before they returned, her symptoms came back. At this point, it became clear that I was going to get reinfected. It was also clear that antibiotics were a dead end. We had to find an alternate solution. After some research, we implemented a protocol which included eliminating vectors of transmission, dietary and lifestyle changes, probiotics, and oregano oil as an internal supplement. This protocol helped and may have eventually worked on its own. However, what stopped the infection in its tracks was an experimental technique that we developed based on how bacteria operate. After each round of antibiotics since the first infection in 2013, I had taken probiotic pills to reestablish the bacteria that normally inhabit the digestive system. Antibiotics wipe these out, and there are a number of secondary symptoms that can occur as a result. However, these probiotic pills were only effective for rebuilding the bacteria in the gut. It doesn't help with the bacteria of the skin. Healthy skin is colonized by good bacteria which form our first line of defense. Killing it creates a vacuum. After months of heavy antibiotics, I had totally wiped out my skin's ecosystem. Once I realized this, it dawned on me that I had to find a way to repopulate the good bacteria on the skin. To do so, I started by buying a bottle of wide-spectrum probiotics in capsule form. I then created a culture of this bacteria by emptying the contents of one capsule into a one-quart jar of cooled black tea with one cup sugar. I then covered the jar with a cloth and set it on a shelf. This is based on the formula used for kombucha and kefir, which contain many of the same strains of bacteria. Within a few days, we could see signs that the bacteria was colonizing the solution. After being in contact with my daughter, I had already developed several small pimples, even though I was still taking tetracycline and rifampicin. So I dropped the antibiotics completely, and we began applying the tea to our entire body after each shower. We would exit the shower without rinsing off the tea and dry off with a clean towel. The effect was immediate. The pimples, cleared up completely, in spite of the fact that I was re-exposed to staph several times. Cuts and scrapes no longer became infected by default. Normal cleaning and bandaging was enough to allow them to heal. The dead skin cells on the surface of our skin are a food source for many types of bacteria. It is quite literally an ecosystem. One way or another, that ecosystem is going to be occupied. Avoiding bad bacteria is impossible. Staph is everywhere. In fact, 20% of the population carry it at all times. The only long-term protection is to fill that niche with strains that are beneficial. It's important to note, however, that the overall state of one's immune system is a critical barrier. During this infection, I experienced firsthand the correlation between too little sleep, exhaustion, poor diet, stress, and the symptoms. Unfortunately, most doctors neglect to mention any of this. Most resort to antibiotics by default and often prescribe them improperly or when they aren't actually needed at all. If all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. There are a number of experimental therapies which hold promise for the treatment of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the future, but it may be years before these are widely available. In the meantime, if you or your family find yourself dealing with an infection that just won't go away, it's important to realize that conventional medicine may not be able to help you, and that your doctor may pressure you to pursue treatments that only make your condition worse. That's a frightening reality to come to terms with. But if you do your research and take responsibility for your own health, there is hope. For more details and specific instructions on treating and preventing MRSA outbreaks in your home, visit our website at stormcloudsgathering.com forward slash how to stop chronic MRSA. To support our work, visit our donate page at stormcloudsgathering.com forward slash donate. You have permission to download and transmit any and all of our content through any venue, commercial or non-commercial. If you want more? Follow Stormclouds Gathering on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. For sources, transcripts, and email updates, visit our website, it's StormCloudsGathering.com. That was
1: great. Yeah. Great story.
0: Yeah.
1: How much? Um, how many capsules did he use? Did he said one? Yeah, he yeah, said just, just one. one. Just one. And it was normal tea or it was a specific tea?
4: It was black tea and then he added sugar.
1: Like one cup, he said.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, So one quart of liquid. It's
1: fascinating.
4: Yeah. (laughs) I can do that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems like it's not a bad idea, even just as... um, you know, just as a defense to do that every once in a while, just to kind of repopulate. You know, every, in in health circles, people are always talking about taking probiotics, but nobody mm-hmm. really ever mentions the idea of like, you know, giving a little boost to the the bacteria culture on your skin. Yeah. So doing something like that, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you don't have an actual infection, then maybe just kind of periodically, I don't know, once a month or something like that, just add something on.
4: Yeah. Sounds like the equivalent of you know when your animals go outside and roll around in the dirt. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's pretty pretty it's it's a pretty brilliant approach really and and I'm actually surprised that you don't see more of these kinds of protocols out there because mm-hmm. um, I mean the, the the approach to kind of getting rid of um, a bad bacterial balance in. Um, The digestive tract is to do something like take probiotics or do a probiotic enema or something along those lines to kind of try and reintroduce some good cultures to kind of push out the bad. Because you have to realize that these all, you know, the the fact that these um, microbes are back, you know, uh, antibiotic resistant, you know, it doesn't really make much of a difference on like the scale down there. Um, on the microscopic level, because these things have all grown together and live in these cultures together and they all have natural defenses against each other. So it kind of makes sense that if, if you were wanting to really fight these things, these like antimicrobial or antibiotic uh, resistant uh, microbes, that you would introduce kind of these these good guys mm-hmm. to, to kind of fight that battle for you rather than kind of take these isolated antibiotics that have been developed, you know, just put in the soldiers that have been proven to actually work, you know?
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Totally.
4: Well, there are actually, um, uh, microbes that's found in the nose that actually produce <laughs> their own antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And there are some researchers, I don't know if they're from Germany or someplace. They're trying to use what they found in human noses to develop a new antibiotic. <laughs> But I think the problem I was with, thinking it. with developing new antibiotics is that it's not profitable. And mm. Uh, mm. none of the pharmaceutical industry yes. want to take that on because you only take it for a set amount of time versus like uh, diabetes drugs or drugs for heart disease where you take them for your whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's not really profitable. So nobody really wants to do it. Yeah. So, I was yeah. thinking,
1: actually, if Marsa is so prevalent in people's noses, what if, you know, you do the same thing uh, instead of a skin irrigation, it could be like a nasal irrigation. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that The makes tea sense. could
1: be filtered, you know, but I will, you know, if I have Marsa on my nose, maybe one of these days it will make a swap of my nose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just do that,
3: Yeah, like do a neti pot with that tea probiotic mixture in it or something like that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You know, know,
2: I I actually had a good experience.
4: Go ahead, I was going to
2: say I had a good experience with uh, with honey, with raw honey. I got uh, what I discovered after it had begun was uh, folliculitis Mm. uh, on my chest and torso. Um, basically was having like itchy bumps, couldn't figure it out, looked it up and based on like pictures and, uh, other accounts, it seemed like it was folliculitis. So it's inflammation of your hair follicles. Um, and it's a, it's an infection. Um, and a lot of people online that I had found were treating this by basically putting raw honey on their skin. And so I tried that, uh, and it worked within <laughs> just, um, I mean, the, the relief on the first day was incredible, and then it was actually completely gone within just a few days. Um, I, so it, fe- it I, feels a little bit weird to rub raw honey all over yourself, but it, it works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I did uh, honey uh, or a sauna bath, you know. But I used honey years oh, wow. ago when I was still living in Costa Rica. There was I was in my hospital practice in gynecology, and there was this infection, localized infection of the meat-eating bacteria. Hmm. So, women who had cesarean cuts, uh, cesarean cuts in uh, two or three days. They had this really bad infection of their wound, and the wound reopened, and all their cavities was basically almost exposed. Okay, pretty gross. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. The point is, (laughs) we didn't have um, expensive products to clean these wounds. And basically, um, the chief of infectology ordered us to clean it out with honey. Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. But
1: it was a lot of honey because the, the wound, when it gets open, it feels a lot of, you know... I think I used nearly four hundred cc or half a liter of honey in one wound. Wow. We just packed it up in uh, packed it up in honey and uh, put uh something to cover it up and uh, then repeat the uh, cleaning next day and next day and it was amazing the healing you know it would clean up the wound completely like mm-hmm. if you would have done like a kurtage when you like scrap with a literally like a spoon to remove all the debris we didn't have to use that because the honey took care of it hmm. and after a few days they were able to close the wound uh normally like a normal surgery you know it was so hmm. clean so pretty the woman wow. was really pleased
4: mm. <laughs> well that surely yeah, beats right, right. using right. maggots yeah but maggots have been <laughs> yeah. known to to eat up the 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 gangrenous tissue and an infected wound and leave the healthy tissue. And that leads to a lot of healing too. But yeah, I take honey over maggots any day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You can feel the maggots moving. I wonder. (laughs) Uh.
2: Honey, honey is pretty incredible. Um, my girlfriend used it on her finger one time. Uh, she slammed her finger in a car door and, uh, it, uh, it split open uh, it was it was pretty pretty gross um, and and bad you know it was a bad uh, split it wasn't like a clean cut um, and put honey on it wrapped it up and basically just kept it slathered in honey and it healed up completely within about a week mm-hmm. um, and it wow. was something you would normally like go to get stitches for um, but the honey really did the trick uh, and I've seen that in other cases too a friend of mine had a a gash on his leg that was pretty bad and he cleaned it out with uh, apple cider vinegar and sea salt which Ouch. is an experience huh. um, and and then basically packed it with honey and it also healed up very quickly Wow
3: Well I guess we don't know for sure if uh, honey would actually work for MRSA but it might be something worth trying <laughs> There are a couple of other <laughs> remedies, though. That um, when we were doing research for the show, we came across. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, uh, black seed oil. Now, black seed. Is, I know it's sometimes known as black cumin seed or um,
4: nigella sativa.
3: That's yeah. That's the Latin name Latin for
4: it. Name? Yeah,
3: it's, it sometimes gets misnamed as onion seed. Mm-hmm. But um, the, I, I remember oh. when I was working in the health food store that we we sold this black seed oil, and. Um, yeah, some people would like come in and just be swearing by it, saying that it's, uh, it's amazing stuff. But apparently there has been a study that has shown that it actually is actually as effective against MRSA. I don't have any details on the study, so I don't know if it was like an in vitro study or a, um, one that was actually, uh, done in a person who had actually contracted MRSA. But, uh, apparently it, it works to, to some degree. Um, uh, also apparently mega dosing vitamin C also works. Which isn't really a surprise, since megadosing vitamin C seems to help with a lot of stuff. uh, (laughs) Miraculous, yeah.
4: IV vitamin C would be even more effective, but how many people have a doctor that is open-minded enough to give them IV vitamin C when they have a case of MRSA? But you know, be worth a shot. And there's also coriander oil, yeah, which they say is good to uh, help fight MRSA.
0: Yeah. There's there's also another quite less commonly known um, alternative treatment that has been used for hundreds of years um, Uh. to treat different infections. I'm not sure if it would help with MRSA, but I'd imagine that it probably would. And that is sunlight. Mm -hmm. It's completely free. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, it's there all it's there all the time. they basically, before antibiotics were first discovered, um, there was actually a movement in medicine, um, and it was called heliotherapy. Mm-hmm. So, what they did was they started examining um, all of these different infectious diseases. Like the, the main one was tuberculosis, and what some what some of the physicians actually um, came to the conclusion they 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 sort of theorized that tuberculosis was a disease of darkness. So they found that the people who got tuberculosis were the ones who spent most of the time inside, outside of the sunlight. Or if they they did go outside, they were not exposed to the sun at the right time of day. Um, And so what they did was they took a number of these patients with TB and (laughs) they didn't give them any medicine. They didn't give them anything else. They simply took them outside every single day for the space of over a couple of months. And it completely, completely um, cured the TB, um, like, perfectly. (laughs) And so they were fascinated by this. And it's recently come to light over the past hundred years or so that UV light, the, um, the UV part of the electromagnetic spectrum, is actually nature's antibiotic, and so when your skin is um, is um, exposed to UV light, what your skin does is it absorbs the UV light, and it uses it as a natural antibiotic. Because, it, I mean, you can if you if you ever go camping or anything like that. Um, You can actually buy certain water filters that use UV light specifically and all you do, they're like a little Mm. pen and you basically just shine the UV light onto the water and it will kill all of the bacteria. Um, and so yeah yeah and so (laughs) and so what there's there's a a photobiologist called Alexander Wunsch and he does a lot of work on this nowadays he's actually taken a lot of the work that was used before the antibiotics he started applying these to his clients nowadays um and yeah he he swears by it he basically he's under the impression that um UV light you know we use it as an antibiotic and it's on. our natural way of um of pre- protecting ourselves against these infections you know so that's another thing you can do you can go outside uh, midday yeah i've read books I hope. On heliotherapy
4: and back in the olden days before antibiotics there were so many and before they were used so widespread they would have the whole ward if they had wounds on their legs or wherever they would push their beds out onto the deck of the hospital and just expose all of them to sunlight. And it actually really, really sped up the healing of their wounds. Hmm. And actually people, That's like, yeah, they would like disinfect their you know kitchen implements, pots and pans or butter churns or whatever. They would set it outside in the light and the sunlight would act as a disinfectant.
0: Yeah, in in the hospital wards, they um they also used to set up um special UV lamps. So mm-hmm. all of the hospital patients would be under these lamps all day. And some experiments have actually shown that when um, a wound is under full spectrum sunlight, or um or yeah, full spectrum sunlight, which includes infrared and UV, the um the healing process is is increased by like. I can't remember how much, but it's significantly increased. But what what they also found was that when you expose a wound to blue light, which is just um, which is say an artificial light source like a fluorescent or halogen light bulb, which doesn't um, contain any of the infrared or UV spectrum, when a wound is um, is exposed to blue light, it delays the healing process by a massive amount so basically if you go into a hospital ward you'll look at the light source and you'll see it's fluorescent light <laughs> and and this research basically shows that the, the the rate of healing under that light is 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 severely hampered so yeah, you know, if you've got a hope... room like this <laughs> <laughs> i hope you never you know get to visit
1: like an isolating unit for a multi- multi-resistant tuberculosis patient like it looks like a cave you know <laughs> just like <laughs>
4: yeah, it's totally it's on a, it's lockdown horrible. house hospitals don't <laughs> even have like uh courtyards anymore where the patients can go outside so if you're suffering from some kind of infection or an open wound you can't even go outside and get any sunlight yeah
0: yeah <laughs> uh, yeah
4: sorry
1: chatter. Uh, it's telling us that milk of the Tasmanian devil is discovered to be highly antibacterial. I think. This is not a joke. I think there's an animal. <laughs>
2: cool.
3: Yeah,
4: Yeah, I think there was an article there. about that on site.
3: Tasmanian devil milk. Yeah.
4: <laughs> they hooked the female Tasmanian devils up to milking machines. <laughs> <And they> <laughs> <laughs> How do they get a like... hold of holes them? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making that up. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> No, so milk makes little true. tornadoes uh, yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: microbial level. <laughs> milk tornadoes.
4: Yeah, so there are ways, some natural ways to fight uh infections, but I think the best way, as Doug mentioned, is to strengthen your own immune system. Bring in the good guys so you know you won't even catch an infection in the first place, let alone have to worry about how to treat it.
3: Yeah. I'm also curious about um, medicinal mushrooms because I know that they have a lot of antimicrobial properties. I mean, they've evolved on this planet for, I don't know, millions and millions of years. And the whole time they're, they're you know fighting off kind of the same kind of microbes that we have to fight off. So they've actually – a lot of the research that's being done right now is by a guy named Paul Stamets. And uh, if you look him up, he's got a lot of great information about um, – I mean, lots about mushrooms, but also particularly about the um, antimicrobial properties of them. So I would think that would be a very interesting place for research in the future.
4: Mm -hmm. Oh, About the Tasmanian devil milk, uh, the milk contains an arsenal of (laughs) antimicrobial compounds, Hmm. which can kill a number of drug-resistant bacteria and fungi. Wow. Yeah. They're kind of cute, too. It kills golden staff, uh, enterococcus, uh, it kills yeasts. Hmm. Wow, it's good stuff! Yeah,
3: (laughs) good luck getting a hold of it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are. We're coming up on our time. How do you guys feel about uh, going to the pet health segment for today?
3: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Yeah, sweet.
2: Cool. Uh, yeah, this is about uh, raisin toxicity in dogs, uh, so it should be a pretty interesting talk, and uh, we will uh, return after this. <coughs>
1: Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya and today I would like to share with you an interesting interview that was conducted by Dr. Karen Becker with Melissa Gardner. Melissa is a professional analyst and her unique skills allowed her to uncover a very interesting and disturbing connection between a raising toxicity in dogs, particularly in the US, and fluoride. Her research sounds like a detective story and has implications not only for our pets, but for human health, too. Here's the interview.
7: Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I'm interviewing Melissa Gardner. Melissa works as an intelligence specialist at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. She is a former military intelligence officer and a Fulbright scholar to the United Kingdom, and she's the author of the book, The End of Acne. Her educational background includes a bachelor's degree in science, technology, and international affairs from Georgetown University, and she has a master's degree in international security from the University of St. Andrews. So, a very diversified and interesting career. Melissa, thank you for joining me.
8: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
7: So, the topic today is acute renal failure uh, pertaining to grapes, and. Um, I'm sure there's a very interesting story about how all these things came together. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you stumbled across uh, this very interesting and quite persuasive theory on renal toxicosis and and grapes with dogs.
8: Well, it it is an interesting story. Um, It goes back. Really, to my childhood, I was given um, fluoride pills as a child. So we were on well water. We weren't getting um, fluorida- fluoride in our water supply. So I was given fluoride pills, and I didn't know it at the time, but I developed a uh, sensitivity to fluoride. So fast forward 20 years, and I decided to go into international studies. Um, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and they have a study abroad program so I was studying abroad in West Africa and right before I left I had really bad cystic acne on my face and I was on Accutane and I got to to Africa and uh, there's the warning on the bottle about sun exposure if you're taking Accutane so I was scared about that and I stopped taking it and my skin was perfectly clear the whole year and I thought wow that Accutane really worked even though I only took it for a month and so um, I came back to the States and Again, I had cystic acne. So this went on throughout my career. I've been doing going abroad and then coming back to the states for the last fifteen years. And every time I would live, you know whether it was Scotland or Tunisia, I would have perfectly clear skin, and I would come back to the states just for a visit, and within two days, I had cystic acne. I eventually figured out that it was the fluoride. I was very sensitive to fluoride, not just um, from toothpaste but from ingesting fluoride. So I wrote a free e-guide, and I put it online, and I just thought I must have this obscure condition because I took these fluoride pills as a child, Uh, but it turns out I I heard from a lot of other people who said, well, that helped me too. I I would have never thought of that, and um, so I ended up writing a book called The End of Acne about my theory that fluoride is the cause of the modern acne epidemic, so I was researching the chapter on the sources of fluoride. And I actually initially was more interested in wine than raisins because I'm not a big raisin fan anyway. Um, and as a rule of thumb, I, I knew that wine from California can contain high amounts of fluoride. So I just had stopped drinking wine from California. Washington State and uh, Oregon, you're fine. There's uh, They don't use cryolite on crops there. But um, from California, the wine can have high levels of fluoride. But for the book, I didn't want to give people that advice because there's so many good wines from Napa and Sonoma, and I was hoping that I could maybe be a little more sophisticated and telling them which wines from California to avoid. So that's when I started um, investigating this whole topic. So, what so is, I, uh, wh- I wrote to,
7: oh, go ahead. Well, what, what is cryolite? J- just for our readers um, uh, that have never heard of that word.
8: So cryolite is a fluoride-based pesticide. It is naturally occurring, um, but now it's widely produced synthetically. It's made from uh, aluminum, sodium, and fluoride together. And they've been using it on grape and raisin crops predominantly um, for decades.
7: Okay, so, so back up, so you, you, you researched cryolite and cryolite application uh, on the grapes grown in California specifically.
8: Right. So I started um, writing to, I wrote to all the regional winery associations in California and asked if they used cryolite. And most of them never heard of it, uh, or they said, no, we don't use that. Um, Some of them told me that retailers wouldn't even sell it because of fears uh, that fluoride would be found in the residual groundwater. And then one of them sent me a link to the California Department of Pesticide Regulations um, online monitoring program, where farmers are required to to report which pesticides they're using. So I was able to go in and see exactly where Cryolite was used in California. And it's all in the Central Valley in a region known as San Joaquin Valley, which is outside of Fresno. And it's also the self-proclaimed raisin capital of the world. So that really raised a red flag with me. I knew that raisins were toxic to dogs and so I wondered you know if veterinarians had investigated the possibility that cryolite is the cause of that so that's really when I um, started looking at the research for uh, that veterinarians had done and saw that there was no reference to cryolite or fluoride and they really weren't even thinking in that vein
7: so you know when you back up and kind of piece the timeline together when when has cryolite been used for 20 years? Because, you know, the, it's interesting. This whole raisin toxicosis issue with pets is new. It's not something that we've recognized uh, for uh, the last 100 years. In fact, even 25 years ago, uh, when I was taking my dogs to dog training class, they suggested to use grapes as training treats because, or, or raisins. They were the perfect size. They're small. Uh, you know, it's lower calorie. And then, of course, just just in the last 20 years, uh, we're saying, no, no, let's not do that because there's this new condition of acute renal failure or kidney disease coming about. Uh, but from an unknown reason or source, we don't know why it why it's happening. So when when did the cryolite application start on raisins uh,
8: grown in California? Uh, the EPA originally approved cryolite in the 80s, but it had already been used. So it was kind of um, grandfathered in at that point. It had been in use for... I think over 20 years. um, And the EPA admitted at the time they still had extensive data gaps in all their disciplines as with regards to the toxicity of cryolite. Um, So 1989 was when veterinarians uh, noticed, noted as the beginning of the trend of raisin toxicity in dogs, which just happens to be the same year that Europeans um, noticed high amounts of fluoride in the wine that they were importing from California. Um, They tried to set a limit of one part per million and the, uh, fluoride, uh, pesticide manufacturers petitioned to have that increase to three parts per million for wines that use cryolite. But even with that exception, they still, still weren't able to meet that, um, that rule. So clearly wine had high amounts of fluoride by 1989. And that's also when veterinarians noticed that raisins were toxic to dogs. They noticed the trend in the late 90s, so it's not clear whether um, that's when dogs started dying from raisins, 1989, or maybe just their data bases started showing that trend at that time. So before that, like you said, people used raisins for dog treats all the time without any um, known issues.
7: It's fascinating, actually, and it, 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 it makes sense uh, chronologically that this could be the culprit. So my question is, There have been some reports that dogs get sick or can acquire kidney disease, acute renal failure, from organic raisins. So, what what's the issue? What could be
8: the potential issue there? That's a really good question. I did see. I haven't found any confirmed evidence, like any studies that show that the dog dogs ate organic raisins, um, except for an ASPCA. Animal Poison Control Center, they did a comprehensive uh, retrospective analysis in 2005, and they mentioned, I think the exact quote was, in one dog, the raisins were described as organic. So I didn't know if that was officially confirmed that the dog had eaten organic raisins. Um, But even so, uh, the uh, pesticide manufacturers did petition for cryolite to be included on the uh, allowed pesticides for organic crops, but their petition was rejected. Um, So, according to the USDA's website, cryolite is not allowed on organic crops. Um, I also wrote to every organic raisin manufacturer I could find in California and asked if they used cryolite. Uh, They confirmed that they didn't and that it was not allowed. Um, However, I was reading on the California Department of Pesticide Regulations website, and in their 2014 annual use summary report, they mentioned that cryolite is allowed on organic crops. So, I was trying to figure out the discrepancy there, and um, I... Have kind of been passed around to different agencies in California's pesticide monitoring program, trying to figure out why someone, at least in California, thought that um, thought that it was allowed. Um, but regardless, it really um, the the thing that really struck me when I started investigating raisins and pesticides was. The EPA is the one that sets the limits for these residue tolerances, and they set a limit for cryolite on different crops. The FDA is responsible for monitoring and enforcing that limit. So uh, the FDA screens for pesticides on an annual basis, but they don't screen for fluoride. So nobody is actually uh, monitoring the, uh, the use of this pesticide. Yeah, that's
7: incredibly scary, very, very scary. And, um, and it's interesting because I, I feel like, like maybe what we need to do is fund, is fund some fluoride studies for the, I mean, the amount of fluoride that could be found in raisins pertaining to acute renal failure in dogs. It makes, it makes complete sense. Um, do you have any theories on, on why that hasn't been done yet? I mean, are you the only person that has linked all this together?
8: From what I've seen, I, I saw one veterinarian who wrote a blog, and he thought that raisin toxicity was caused by fluoride, but he said that fluoride was naturally occurring in raisins. So he didn't put together that it's not naturally occurring. It's a pesticide that is used on raisins. Um, in the review that I mentioned that the Animal Poison Control Center did in 2005, they, um, they didn't find any dose-response relationships. So it could be a 100-pound dog. It could be a 5-pound dog. And there was no... There was no uh, correlation with how much raisins they consumed and the response, the amount of uh, of kidney failure and the amount of side effects that they had. So they did take this to um, to indicate that pesticides are an option. Maybe this is an extrinsic substance found on the raisins. You know that's not always there. So you're basically like playing raisin roulette. Um, they did a, in the 12, pa- 12 page study, they only had one paragraph evaluating this hypothesis that maybe it was pesticides. And in my opinion, they very quickly discounted pesticides um, for not very good reasons. Uh, the first reference, uh, they said, here's a study that shows that pesticides aren't. Um, aren't aren't there's not enough pesticides on grapes when um when they're used in the correct fashion. And they referenced a study done in Sardinia. So Sardinia right. is, you know, an island in Italy, one of the blue zones, you know, known for the highest resveratrol content of the world on their wines. It's a completely different plant than what we're growing in California. Right. So I didn't think that was good reasoning. And then the other thing they pointed to was the FDA monitoring database that showed that um that they uh were inspecting grapes, um, but they weren't inspecting raisins, which was very odd. Um, Even looking at the California Department of Pesticide Regulations Monitoring Program, in all the 90s, they only inspected raisins once in 1995, and they didn't screen for fluoride. And since then, they've only inspected raisins two more times, 2010 and 2012 which is really odd because they generally inspect all the common fruits every year. Hmm. And even very obscure fruits are checked on a regular basis. So I found that very strange that raisins weren't being looked at more closely by any of the government, either state or federal agencies.
7: Well, and maybe maybe they just they just don't want to see what's there, so they're choosing not to inspect it. Well, we just don't know, obviously, but that is that is quite suspicious. Because you've done you've kind of uh, you have a history of kind of researching fluoride. Do you know are there labs that can check fluoride levels? If you know if this is something that the veterinary that veterinarians wanted to pursue, is it pretty is it something that could be easily done?
8: I think the easiest way to confirm or refute this theory is to test for fluoride. So the next case of raisin toxicity in dogs, um, if they were able to test the animal's urine, the blood, and the offending raisins, if they're available, and see if there's elevated levels of fluoride to see if the dogs are suffering from fluoride toxicity and not raisin toxicity.
7: Well, let me tell you, I... um uh, when you contacted me and said, what do you think about this? It's something I had, of course, in the back of, of integrated veterinarians' minds, we're all thinking there has to be something. They're a little bit like the chicken jerky, where we haven't been able to identify that there is a toxicant there. Assumably, there has to be something um, man-made and a foreign chemical creating disease in animals' bodies. And the same has to be true. Uh, we just haven't yet discovered it. We know that wild dogs, coyotes, wolves, have been known to forage on grapes. In fact, in some parts of the world, they eat quite a few grapes and they don't seem to have um, problems with uh, acute renal failure that we know of. It's not been identified. So, it does appear that this could be a quite plausible theory that just needs to be investigated and I think it's awesome that you've been able to piece it together through your very diversified background.
2: All right, thank you, Zoya, for sharing that with us. These fascinating good. connections there yeah
4: yeah i didn't know that dogs couldn't eat raisins no i mean, you just hear about dogs and chocolate
3: i'd never heard that before either
2: um well i don't have a uh, a recipe for today my apologies it's been a busy week <laughs> uh, we will have one ready for you uh next week i will make sure to get that uh prepared I was hoping to have caught some uh, some salmon so I could do a salmon recipe, but alas, I got skunked. I
1: <laughs> but if you think about it, we did have a recipe for today's show by storms, clouds, gathering, you know. One
3: mm-hmm. exactly, One capsule yes. of probiotic, <laughs> one a cup of tea,
1: of, and then...
3: No, a quart of tea. One
1: quart of tea.
3: And a cup of sugar.
1: And one cup of sugar. And you have to leave yes. it
3: for...
1: Leave it for a few days. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Until the culture grows and it's ready to use. You Mm -hmm. bath on it.
3: Yeah. I wonder if he put it in like a spray bottle or something like that. Or if he just kind of dumped it on himself.
4: I think a spray bottle would be much more efficient. I think so too.
2: (laughs) I would think so (laughs) too, yeah. All right. Well, that is our show for today. So we'd like to uh, thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, Thank you to our chat participants for. taking part in the chat, and uh, really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, be sure to listen to the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Uh, if you are in a different time zone, just go to radio.sot.net uh, and the uh, the show will be posted there in your local time zone. So be sure to check that on Sunday morning uh, wherever you might be. Uh, and we will be back Next week with a uh, with a new topic. Um, so thanks again, everybody, and have a great weekend.
4: Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.